Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles with you, if you would open to the sixth chapter of Matthew. And as you're getting settled, if you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, we do have some set throughout behind kind of each of the sections. Feel free to hop up and grab one if you, if you want or need one. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one and uh, feel free to keep it as our gift to you. Well, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 6, uh, I'd like to add my welcome this morning. Uh, my name is Ryan Burns. I'm the Director of Operations here at Redemption Hill Church, which means on Sunday morning, uh, you usually won't see me standing up here. Uh, rather, you'll see me running around, uh, acting like I have something very important to do. Um, and it's my honor to serve Redemption Hill in that way week in and week out and throughout the week, and uh, it is my very special honor this morning uh, to open the Word of God with you. Um, I will give you a warning that uh, generally my personality is, is somewhat stoic, uh, but uh, God and His divine uh, humor uh, often causes me to cry in front of large crowds of people. Uh, it's very awkward for me. And uh, it probably will be for you too, so <laughs> just let's prepare for that. <laughs> but let's pray before we get uh, into, the, into God's word this morning. Father, it is, it is such an honor to gather together and to worship you and to sing your praises to hear what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. Um, it is such a treasure. Uh, this morning, I pray that you would, that you would help us as we, as we look in your word, as we listen to the words of Jesus, your son. Um, Lord, help us. Help us to, to hear what you would say to us. Lord, open our hearts wide and come in and reign as king. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter six. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. The word of the Lord. We're at a really great point in our series in the Sermon on the Mount to kind of step back and see how we got here. Uh, we're about five or six weeks into the series. Um, we've increased in number even in these six weeks, and some of you, it might be your first time here. Uh, some of you might have uh, not as strong memories as others and can't remember what happened five weeks ago. And so I thought I'd take an opportunity as we begin this morning to kind of trace our steps and to see how we got here to chapter six. And, and we began our series uh, this summer with, with Robert um, 
coming up, and, and he, he kind of was laying the groundwork as we approached the Sermon on the Mount. And, and as Robert began to talk, he, he started using a term, and it's kind of been the subtitle for our series this summer, and he began using the term gospel cardiology. And, and cardiology, just in, in very natural terms, is the medical specialty dealing with disorders of the heart. And so some of us have probably had uh, an experience of someone that we know who, who, who looking perfectly normal and, and healthy on the outside, went in for an annual exam and they got hooked up to an EKG and nobody really knows how it works or what it does, but they hook them up and, and all of a sudden the doctor's eyes get big and they strap them on a gurney and they rush them into the emergency room because the, it revealed that though healthy on the outside, there was actually something horribly wrong on the inside that needed to be addressed. And, and that's very much what, what Jesus is doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He's getting into our hearts. He's, he's, he's digging past the surface level of our, of our outward actions and really digging into the depths of our heart. And so we began uh, back in chapter five uh, where Ray, uh, where Ray did in one week what, what it takes most pastors eight or nine weeks to do, and he, he walked through the entire Beatitudes. Um, and what we saw from the very beginning is that Jesus walks up on the mount and sits down taking his position as a teacher, and his disciples and followers come to him, and he begins to teach them. And, and from the very get-go, Jesus is explaining that his kingdom is radically different. That to be a follower of Jesus is, is radically different than the life that we normally live. And in some ways, he seemingly says, up is down and left is right. And, and what we look at and we see that, that uh, in the natural course of life, it's often, you know, only the strong survive. And it's, and it's this seeking of, of power and authority and, you know, working my way up the corporate ladder so that I can be the one in charge. And, and Jesus says, you know what, my, my kingdom's actually quite different. My kingdom is where the humble and the meek and the pure of heart are exalted and the peacemakers. And Jesus, Jesus kind of begins to flip things on their head from the very get-go. And from there, he goes on to say that, that being a follower, being a disciple of Jesus, being one who follows him is, is not something that just happens, you know, in secret, in a hidden place and four walls, but that Jesus has a purpose for his radically different people and that's to put them on display to the world and he, he begins to tell us that we are like salt and we are like light and we are like a city set on a hill, that there's a usefulness for us, that there's a purpose for us that, that he actually wants to put us on display and he says in verse 15 of chapter five, he does this so that people might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. From there, Jesus goes on and he declares, um, he begins to speak about the law. And he clarifies right here at the very beginning that he's not here to do away with the law. But in fact, Jesus is here to fulfill it. And, and the accusation of, of Jesus doing away with the law is something that he was faced throughout his earthly ministry all the way up until his crucifixion. Constantly people, the religious leaders were speaking out against him saying, this man speaks against the law and the prophets and Moses. But yet from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he says, I haven't come to do that, but I've come to fulfill it. 
I've come to bring it to its fullest point, its fullest expression. And he also concludes, and he points out that the law is more than just a surface obedience to a set of rules, which is what most of the people, most of the religious people had boiled it down to. And I think if we're honest, it's what we do a lot of times. We simply want to boil everything down to a set of religious rules that we must follow. But he concludes that the life of his followers must actually exceed those of who were just mere rule followers. And it's here that Jesus really gets down to gospel cardiology and he goes after our heart. And for the last two weeks, uh, we've looked at our moral righteousness. And we've looked at these religious rules that we've set up and we've, we've, we've created these boxes of, of external um, things that we can check off. We can say, well, I haven't murdered or I haven't coveted, or, or when, when, I, when I've sought after legal recompense from somebody, I've done it within the bounds of the law. I've, I've lived a moral life. But what we saw for the past two weeks is that sin is far more serious than we ever dared to think. What we've seen over the past two weeks is that in the presence of a holy, and pure and just God, that sin is so much greater, that even such the extent that Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother, you have committed murder. If you let your mind wander a little bit too far about what would it be like with that person, you've committed adultery. Jesus shows us time and time again over the last two weeks how serious sin really is and that it's so much more than just this surface outward action. Jesus cuts deep and he's looking at our hearts. The the morality of Jesus' followers is not simply to be external. It's to be all the more inward. And what we've seen week in and week out is that in almost every sentence that we come face to face with the reality of how short we fall of Jesus' standard for his followers. Every week, I know every week, I look in and I say, ah, that's me. But what we learn each week And it's going to be the same thing that we'll learn today is that Jesus here is not only the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount, but he's actually the embodiment of the message. And then it's only through faith in Jesus that we have both the desire and the ability to turn from our ways and actually to follow him up onto this mountain. And so we come to today's text in Matthew 6. And Jesus takes aim now from our moral righteousness to our religious righteousness. And he starts here in verse, in chapter six, verse one, with the word beware. And uh, whenever, whenever I hear the word beware, the first thing that always pops up into my mind is, is like the road signs. And so you're, you're driving down the road and you see a sign that says, beware, bridge, ice in winter. 
or, or my wife and I used to live in Washington State and, and the, the road that we'd take to get to Seattle whenever we'd go and visit, um, there were lots of, of kind of cliffs along the side with rocks and we'd see signs that say, you know, beware uh, falling rocks. And, and whenever you see these signs in life, you pay attention. The call of the sign is that you would pay attention to your surroundings and what's going on and what's happening around you so that if it's winter, you actually need to pay attention to the bridge because it might be covered in ice. And when you're, driving, when you're driving past these rocks, you need to be aware that at any moment one of them might fall and you'll have to swerve into the other lane. So where are the other cars around you? We pay attention to these signs, but how much more when Jesus who holds the universes together by the word of his power, says, beware, should we pay close attention? So I'm gonna make two, two kind of observations here as we get going, and, and the first is when we come to the first verse here, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Um, some of you might might kind of shake your head a little bit uh, with confusion because it seems here that Jesus is contradicting what he said previously in chapter five, verse 16, where he says that uh, his desire is that you may do your good works before others so that they might glorify your Father in heaven. But here it seems that he's saying beware when you practice your righteousness before people. So is it, are we supposed to be doing it before people or not doing it before people? And really, if we pay attention to the text and what Jesus is saying, he's not saying that you won't do your righteousness before other people, but he's concerned in how you do it. Is your motive, he's asking, to be seen by others? He's already told us that he wants us as his followers to put us on display so that people might glorify God. But he's after our hearts this morning. The other thing that, that, um, that we can observe pretty quick from Jesus' words is that he assumes that we will give. There's an outright assumption of Jesus that those who follow him, those who love him and treasure him, will give. He does not say if you give to the needy, but he says when. From the get-go, Jesus assumes that we will give, and this morning he's not trying to motivate us to give. It's an assumption that we will, but he's after how we will give. And so, as we walk through the text this morning, and, and, and as I've had the opportunity over the past you know, week, couple weeks, as I've been reading, um, when I read the scriptures, I have questions. I read it and I'm like, okay, well what does, that, what does that mean? What do I do with that? How do I do that? Who is it talking about? Is that talking about me? Surely that can't be me that that's talking about. So, often it is. Um, but as I read this text, I had, I had three kind of questions that really kind of came to the forefront of my mind that I think, I think might be ones that you have in your mind. And so we'll go through those, but then I also think that, that as we read Jesus' words here, that he actually has questions for us. And so we'll look, at, we'll look at our questions, we'll walk through those, and then we'll listen to what I believe Jesus' questions are. So the first question that I came up with was, uh, who are the needy? 
And I'll be completely honest with you. As soon as the thought came to my mind, I realized that I was, I was being just like the religious leaders that Jesus has warned us about. My, I realized in that first instance, when I first read it, and when I first asked that question, that I was simply looking for a category of person to put a checkbox next to so that I could just check it off. Who are the needy so that I can fulfill my religious duty and check them off my list? Maybe you didn't do that. But in particular here, I mean, if we're just looking at who are the needy, uh, we can look at the words used, and, and really, some of your translations might say, um, when you give alms to the needy, or in your giving of alms, and really, that's, a, that, that's really the word that is at the root there uh, in the Greek, and it's, it's the idea of almsgiving. And, and it was really a common practice in Jesus' time, and, and those who would beg for alms most, most often would sit outside the temple. And it would be people who, um, in most, most cases, were, were either crippled or lame or blind or had some sort of physical ailment that prevented them from ever being able to actually um, provide for themselves. And so they would sit there and they would rely fully upon the generosity and kindness of those coming into the temple to worship that they would give alms. And, and we see this throughout the New Testament. In fact, the, the one that, that came to my mind first as I was thinking uh, about this was in Acts chapter three, where we see Peter and John. And so Jesus has, has died, he has uh, been raised from the dead and he has ascended to the Father and all the disciples had gone and they were praying in the upper room and Pente- the Holy Spirit comes and Pentecost and, and they're sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And John and Peter are walking to temple one day to go and worship God, and they see a man there begging alms. And, and Peter looks at him, and he says, look at me. That's one of my favorite, look at me. Silver and gold I have not, but what I have, I give. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the man rose up and walked and exceeding praise went up to God and he was glorified in the moment and the gospel was, was preached. Um, but, but that's what we see in, in a very kind of strict grammatical sense. The, Jesus is using the example of those begging alms at the temple. But I believe that Jesus here is using a specific example as means for a much greater principle. And I think he's using this example, and, and really I think it's very safe to say, and, and, and this is not impressive in any, uh, any sense, the needy are those who have needs. Just plain and simple. Who are the needy? People that have needs. I mean, it could be as simple as, as perhaps you have a, a, a neighbor and in the fall, the, the neighbor doesn't have the physical ability to rake their leaves. Uh, the, your neighbor's needy. Um, perhaps it's, it's a missionary on a foreign field who, who um, their, their financial support has begun, begun to dwindle away. And they're laboring and working to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
they have a need. They, they, they need money. Maybe it's, maybe it's your church that needs to pay rent to the city so that you can meet in a gymnasium with, that sometimes has air conditioning. <laughs> maybe it's somebody that just needs you to listen. They just need a friend, somebody to love them. I think Jesus uses a, a specific example that we can extrapolate to really the needier, just those who have need. And Jesus isn't drawing particular attention to who to give or even what to give, whether it be your time, your treasure, or your talent. But he's helping us to see how to give. And, and I wanna take a moment here um, to just be brutally honest with you. Um, as, as I've read this text and, and just through the, the, the course of recent events in, in, in my life and in our family's life, God in, in, his, in his grace and his mercy has, has opened my heart to see that I have made myself the needy. And I've given to myself quite generously. And what I mean by that is, is recently just by the, what I would call the uncomfortable grace of God, um, just financially speaking, things have, have begun to get a little tight around our house. And in, and in that happening, I sat down and I looked at our finances and, and I just realized the extent to which I gave to myself on a regular basis. And I began to examine and think about it and I could look over the course of, of roughly 10 years and just see how, I mean, there's, there's a reality that, that life just gets more expensive the older you get. I mean, you go from being in college, you know, living in a four bedroom house with, you know, seven of your closest friends <laughs> and rent is amazingly inexpensive to getting married and now there's only two of you to cover the cost of rent. And then suddenly there's kids that come in and you have to buy houses now. And there's more kids, so you have to buy minivans. And everybody apparently needs clothing. <laughs> it just gets more, life just gets more and more expensive and, 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 and there's no doubt about that. But I can honestly say that, that even over the last six months, I looked and I said, you know what, Lord? I had I'd completely made myself the needy and justified so many expenses, just spending so much of my money on myself. And, and honestly, I, I, I have repented. I went to my wife and I repented. I, I went to God and I repented. And I'm, I'm just so thankful for the opportunity to come before him and, and to seek him that I might be a, a, a good steward of the resources that he gave. I'm not saying that you have to be poor. I'm not preaching that you can't buy things, take yourself out to lunch. I just know how bad it got out of whack in my life. And maybe that's helpful for you too. So who are the needy? It's those who have need. The second question that, that, that came to me is how, how are we to give? And Jesus really kind of gives three kind of examples of how to give. 
Uh, two of them he kind of expresses in a, in a negative way, like don't give like this. Uh, and one he expresses positively. And the first one we see here is in six, chapter six, verse two. He says, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say they've received their reward. And so Jesus tells us first and foremost not to give like the hypocrites. And, and the word hypocrite here carries the, the, the sense and the connotation of, of like an actor. And an actor um, will put on a mask and pretend to be somebody that they're not really. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't pretend to be someone that you're not. And what the hypocrites are doing is they're giving and wanting to put on the mask and give the appearance that they're actually doing a generous gift. They're doing a generous act of kindness and benevolence. When all the while their entire motive is not the act of benevolence itself, but it's that people would make much of them. Pride is in their heart. They want much to be made of them. They want people to look at what they've given and say, oh, look, did you see that? Did you see that wad of money he just stuck in? Oh my goodness, that was huge. They want to, they want to make much of themselves, but they mask it under the guise of benevolence and kindness and mercy. How do we do that? How do we, what's, what's our trumpet? How do we toot our own horn and our giving? Let us not be like the hypocrites. Let us not give for people to make much of us. He also says negatively to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And if that verse has ever confused you, please raise your left hand, but don't let your right hand know that you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think here Jesus again is getting at our heart. And he says that maybe, maybe, maybe your giving is for just internal pride. Is there, is there a part of you when you give that, that maybe, maybe to a degree you do give in, in secret? Maybe, maybe some of you give online because you, you feel like somehow dropping, dropping your offering in one of the offering boxes around the thing. Maybe you give online because that way nobody will see it and my giving will be in secret. But, but as you're punching in the, those numbers, there's something that rises up in you and go, yep, those chairs, those chairs we bought a few months back. Yep. Thank goodness I'm here to give. Or man, you know, we, we, we just, we, what rises up in your heart when you give? Is there some sort of internal pride? Is there some sort of, maybe it's not sounding a trumpet in front of everyone, but in your own heart, you're sounding your own trumpet. Are you making much of yourself? And I think the idea is that in a sense, Jesus is trying to convey that you pay no mind to your giving. 
And that's not mean to, to say that you give frivolously or without thought or without prayer and consideration and, and to some degree even, even planning. But give it no thought. Can you just freely give? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And also positively, Jesus encouraged us to give in secret. And I think here again, he's just getting into our hearts. Your goal isn't to be made much of, and it's not to make much of yourself, but it's to be a humble overflow of the very life and breath and gracious gifts that you have been given in God. That it just be an overflow. Jesus assumes that as his disciples, as his followers, that we just give. It's who we are. It's at the core and the essence of of our very being. Will you give in secret? Or do you, you know, you will at times give publicly. I mean, it, it gets back to what we said in, in, verse five, in chapter five, verse 16. Your good works will be done before people. Unless you rake your neighbor's yard in the middle of the night. I mean, your good works, the giving of yourself, the giving of your time, the giving of your talent, the giving of your treasure, the giving of your very life will be done before people. but are you simply doing it so that people make much of you or that you make much of yourself? Or will you, will you do it for the reward of the Father? Which brings me to the third question that I come, came to. Um, reward? Like, is that a little bit weird for anybody? Like, do you, do you read that and, and think, well, that's not very altruistic? Like, to give, to get something, isn't that kind of beside, like didn't you just kind of tell us to, to not do that? But yeah, we are supposed to do it for a reward. And I think the problem is that we often have a misguided view of what reward really is. And honestly, our misguided view often shows us where our heart truly lies. You know, I think there might be some of us who, who think, well, Man, if I just, if I give in secret as I give the Lord, it says he'll reward me. And so I can just, I can already see that crown in heaven. It's all big and shiny. And every time I give, there's an extra little shiny jewel that goes in my crown in heaven. Or, or that, you know, Jesus, you know, he was a carpenter. So obviously he's up there like making me a mansion in heaven. You know, and every time I give, like it's getting bigger, a bigger mansion. Or even, or even, you know, that we might say, well, well, the reward is that, you know, God, when I, give, when I give this beat down junker of a car to this poor, helpless college student that you're gonna, you know, put a Benz in my garage. Or then we even get even more wacky and we think, well, he says not to give in order to get the praise of men, so I'm not gonna do that, but when I give, he's gonna reward me and maybe he'll reward me with the praise of men. And, and we just, we have very misguided views of reward. And I think there's, there's at least four ways that we can really rightly interpret reward. 
And I think the first is that the action actually completes its intended goal. And so we, we, we see that played out for the hypocrite, right? Their action, their intended goal was that they received the praise of men, right? They gave the action with the intended goal of receiving the praise of men, and Jesus says, you know what? They get their reward. The thing they really were going after, they received. And so I think in a very real way that, that when we give in secret, when we give out of the overflow of what Christ has done for us, as we begin to do that, the action actually completes its intended goal and simply that the need was met. Is that not a great reward to see someone in need and to meet that need? That the need has been met, that, that, that Peter and John, as they're walking in and they see a man begging, lame, and they meet his need, and, and in that case, actually, he raises up and walks? What more do you want? When you see someone who is hurt and broken and, and in need of someone to just love them and listen to them and care for them and pray for them because they don't have a friend in the world, is the reward not enough that they now have that in you? The action completes its intended goal. I think another way to rightly interpret reward is that, very simply, God is glorified. In Matthew 5, 16, we see that, that the whole purpose of God putting us on display as his disciples and followers is that they might glorify our Father in heaven. And so as you do these works, it's not that you would receive honor or that you would build yourself up, but that people would make much of God. Is that reward enough for you? I think the reward is also what Jesus says later. And you can go home if you haven't already read it, what he says in chapter six, verses 25 through 34. And I'm not gonna go into detail this morning because that's somebody else's sermon to preach. But I'm setting them up. <laughs> but I think that part of the reward that Jesus has in mind is actually what we see later on in the chapter. And in that chapter, Jesus begins to tell us what a life is like free from anxiety. How's that sound? A life free from anxiety. I believe that when we really get to this point of, of following Jesus and giving freely of ourselves, not for the praise of men, not for the pride of our heart, that we actually begin to take a step towards living a life free of anxiety. I look forward to whoever's preaching that Sunday. And then I think a fourth way to rightly interpret reward is that the reward is the Father himself. The reward is the Father himself. If, if you are a follower of Christ, in the depths of who you are, I gotta believe that in the depths of your longing of your soul, one of the greatest things that you seek is to see the Father, to actually behold his glory and fullness and splendor, to, to see him seated high and lifted up, 
And Jesus is constantly going after our heart and the purity of our heart and the purity of, of what motivates us to do things. And it actually says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. I believe part of the reward is just seeing the Father. And so I believe also that the, the text, as I said, those, those are the questions that, that I've kind of wrestled through and thought through as I came to Jesus' words here. Who are the needy? How should we give and what is this reward? But I think that the text actually has two questions for us. I think there's, there's two questions that Jesus has for us here. And the fir- they're, they're horribly obvious. It's do you give? Do you give? And I'm not just talking about writing a check, though that's obviously included. But do you give? Are you you so captured by Jesus and so consumed by what he has done for you that you are, are motivated and driven for the glory of God to give of your time, your talent, and your treasures. Do you give? What areas do you not? What areas have you made yourself the needy? And second, I think the text in Jesus asks us, why do you give? Do you give to be made much of by others? Do you give to make much of yourself? Or do you give to make much of your Father who is in heaven? And and, and I'll close with this. We give imperfectly. I give imperfectly. You give imperfectly. We have given imperfectly. And in the future, most unfortunately, we will give imperfectly. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continually cuts at our hearts. And what we come to see is that there is, in fact, a way in which we can call ourselves the needy. We very much are the needy. But the good news is this. In our reading together this morning, as we read and responded to God's word together, we read the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where it says, for we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus who has called us to give. The Lord Jesus who, is, who has led us through this entire sermon on the mount. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sake, yet for our needy sake, he became poor. So that you and me, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus has given perfectly. He has lived the life that we are called to live, and he has died the death that our sin caused us to deserve to die. 
Our sin, as we've seen week after week after week, is far greater than we ever dared to fear. And whether we like it or not, it says in Ephesians chapter two that we are children of wrath. But thanks be to God that Jesus, seeing our needy estate, he gave. Jesus gave for me and for you. And he gave fully and he gave purely and he took our sins upon himself. And as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he gave us his righteousness. And so now here's what we can do. This is such good news. As those who have been given much, as those who have put their faith and hope and trust in what Jesus has done, as he is freely given, we are now free. You are free. You are free to go and do likewise. You are free to give. You are free to follow our Lord Jesus. You are free to look to him for the power and the motivation and the heart to give. Let's pray. Forgive us, Lord, where we give so imperfectly. Thank you for your son And as we've sung this morning, his perfect sacrifice, the perfect giving of his life in our place for our sins. Lord, help us to see that, to savor that, and that it transform us in such a radical way. Thank you for freeing us to give, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.